This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. You're listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Gold, the stuff of pirate treasures, fairy tales, wedding rings, also the focus of alchemy, the medieval forerunner of chemistry in its quest to transform matter. Surprisingly, perhaps, in modern times, gold is a metal, an element whose origins have still been surrounded by a bit of mystery. How is gold made? How did gold get on earth? And why is gold more rare than other metals on earth, say iron? Seems like questions we should have answered long ago. It turns out my next guest is a young scientist who recently settled a long-standing question about the origin of gold and other heavy elements in our universe. In this half hour, we explore that mystery with Brian Metzger. Brian grew up along the Mississippi in Burlington. He studied math and physics at the University of Iowa, went on to receive his Ph.D. from the University of California, Berkeley, awarded a NASA Einstein Fellowship, also did his postdoctoral work at Princeton. He is currently a professor of physics at Columbia University in New York City and a senior research scientist at the Flat Iron Institute. In 2020, Brian received the prestigious Blavatnik Award for his research into the origins of gold in the universe. Brian joins us from his office at Columbia University in New York City. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You are a theoretical astrophysicist. Introduce us, before we get to the gold thing, (laughs) introduce us, please, to your area of focus in this field. I understand you are interested in your words. You say it is the explosive universe. What is that? Well, broadly, astrophysics is, of course, the study of everything, you know, outside of, of the Earth. And uh, we, we break down that field, you know, into kind of two uh, types of scientists. We have the observers who go out with big telescopes and, and measure things, events or, or objects like galaxies and stars or explosions. And then we have, you know, theorists uh, who try to interpret that given the known laws of physics. We try to understand what we're seeing and maybe even make predictions for it. So I'm of the latter type. I'm a a theoretical astrophysicist. And my particular specialty is, as you say, the explosive universe. So trying to understand the birth and death of stars and the the compact objects that they create when they die. So black holes and neutron stars. That's one area of my research. And then another is understanding, which is very closely connected to that, the origin of the elements. Where do uh, the elements that make up the periodic table come from. Many of them are produced, as Carl Sagan said, you know, it, it, it's star stuff. Uh, we are made of star stuff. So many of them are produced in stars when they explode. Uh, but more exotic events are required to produce the heaviest elements. You know, one, one of my recent interests is trying to understand where the, the heaviest elements like gold, silver, and platinum come from in our universe and what types of cataclysmic events uh, may give rise to the conditions that enable these elements to be produced. You theorized how gold was created in our universe and uh, your prediction that was confirmed not too long ago. Where do we start with this story? Maybe we could start from the fact that 
you know, we have a pretty good understanding where the lighter elements come from, the elements of life, even up to iron. We know that these are formed in, you know, massive stars and expelled into space when they explode as supernova. But it turns out it's much harder to create elements that are much heavier than iron. What you need to do is you need to take an iron nucleus and you need to bombard it at a very high rate with neutrons. So, but as, as you may know, uh, or may, maybe don't know, neutrons are unstable. They actually decay in a vacuum away into protons in about 10 minutes. And so in order to create the heaviest elements, we need a site in nature where there's a very high abundance of neutrons. And this has led us, uh, led a lot of people to, to think about these objects called neutron stars. Um, so neutron stars are the cores of stars that are left over, big stars much larger than our sun. At, at the end of their life, when they explode, they, they birth these neutron stars. They, neutron stars have about the mass of our sun, but confined to a size of about New York City, uh, so, so 10 kilometers or so. And, and we think that these neutron stars may be critical to, to creating the conditions that give rise to these heavy elements. And in particular, the collision between uh, two of these neutron stars, which is a very rare event in our universe. Uh, but we think that the, the collision of these neutron stars has long been hypothesized to be a site where these heavy elements could be produced. And so the, the story really starts, well, it's, it starts a long time ago, but it's, but it's come to a climax recently in 2017. Uh, there was the first detection, direct detection of these two colliding uh, neutron stars. Um, and we detected it in a very atypical way. Most of the time we, we detect things by pointing our telescopes to them. In this case, the two colliding neutron stars were detected through their gravitational wave emission. So as these neutron stars get closer and closer together, they, these are very massive objects. They're strongly distorting the space and time around them, and they can create these ripples that, uh, believe it or not, propagate out from the site where these stars are merging. And believe it or not, we can actually detect them now on Earth. There are these uh, gravitational wave observatories. There are two in the United States, one in Washington State and one in Louisiana. And uh, the name of the experiment is LIGO, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And this LIGO observatory in 2017, for the first time, detected these colliding neutron stars, not with telescopes, but with their gravitational waves. But they um, immediately told the astronomers of the world, okay, there was a merging neutron star system in that part of the sky right now. You should point your telescopes over there. And that's what a large fraction of our community did. Uh, there are many of the biggest telescopes in our world, uh, in, in, in the world, pointed towards the direction of this neutron star merger. And what they saw was a, a fading glow of light uh, that lasted about a week. And it, it, was in a, it was in a galaxy that it was actually fairly close by, uh, by astronomical terms. It was 130 million light years away. But uh, essentially what I did was, was to make predictions for the appearance of that light, like how bright it was, what color it was, and to connect the signal we saw to the formation of these heavy elements like gold, silver, and platinum in the ejecta, the matter that was uh, released into space when these neutron stars collided. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about your prediction. You said the color of this, the, the specific area that you predicted, because I understand the color, uh, even from that vast difference distance, you can, you, it, it tells you what elements are being created. Yeah. Um, it turns out that the color of the stellar explosions that create some of the heaviest elements, uh, are much redder, uh, than ordinary stellar explosions. So one of the hints that this event um, 
produced these heavy elements was actually in the in the very red color. And it has to do with the very complex nature of these heavy elements and uh, um, and, and the way that they absorb ultraviolet light. Um, so, so I made predictions about that. Um, uh, maybe I should should step back a little bit and explain why we see light at all from the production of these elements. Um, mm-hmm. So, so as I mentioned, the the way you create these gold is you take an iron nucleus, which is fairly easy to create in these explosions, and you bombard it with neutrons, and in this way you create a very heavy element. Uh, but it's it's radioactive; it's not a stable element. Uh, so, so you've created all of this radioactive waste uh, during the early stages of this explosion, and now you're expelling this radioactive waste into space. And as we know, uh, radioactive waste decays. It's, it, it actually releases a lot of energy. This is the, the basis for you know, fission uh, energy production. Um, and, and so the energy that was released by the radioactive decay of this newly freshly formed gold, if you will, was what caused this event to glow. It was the light that we saw, the power source, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so these colliding neutron stars basically create a bunch of, of radioactive, uh, heavy elements, disperse them into space. And I made predictions for, you know, how bright that event would be, what, you know, what would, what would be, how bright it was, how long it would last. And, and also the, the specific colors. So how, whether, how much, you know, optical light it would produce, uh, sorry, uh, red light versus blue light. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And in reading about your research, uh, Brian, um, there's this term that uh, run into that most people, I assume, will not know. We know supernova, a star going supernova, but there is a kilonova involved in that process. What is that? Right. So when we did the first, I should say we, we did these calculations uh, back in 2010 uh, when I was just uh, at Princeton, beginning my postdoc at, uh, work at Princeton. Um, and when we did the calculations, the prediction was that these events would be about a thousand times brighter than an ordinary nova. So there are also events in addition to supernova, there are also ordinary nova in our galaxy. Uh, and this event was about a thousand times brighter than that. And so that's the prefix kilo. So we gave it the name kilo nova uh, as a result of how bright it was. Uh, and, and that name has essentially stuck. So, so now it's sort of taken on, this term has taken on its, its, its own character and, and people use it to describe the whole phenomena when originally it was, uh, you know, a specific model for the, the light that would be produced from this event. But that, that's, you know, that's essentially what, exactly what you said. A supernova is the explosion of a massive star and a kilonova is the light we see from the collision of two neutron stars. Mm-hmm. If you just joined us, my guest, theoretical astrophysicist Brian Metzger, now a professor of physics at Columbia University in New York City. We're talking about the, the recognition he's got, he's received for his research into the origins of gold and other heavy elements in our universe. So where, you, you told the story about this, uh, this event, a uh, neutron star, these, this neutron star merger in 2017, August of 2017. Were you actually, uh, of course, to, to say that you witnessed it or, or measured it in real time is, is a twist of time because this happened 130 million years ago, right? The light reaching us? It, it did, but it, it plays itself at the right, at right speed. So it happened a long time ago, but, but we see it unfold at, at, at the same, same, same pace. Um, uh, but, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's true. I, I, I was not, uh, so I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, so I make the models and I don't, go to the big telescopes and take that data myself. Mm. But I work with the observational astronomers who do that data. And, and, and this was actually a worldwide secret. LIGO uh, 
for various reasons, was is quite secretive about its discoveries, but it was telling the astronomers who had to have this imme- information immediately to be able to point their telescopes there. And so there were astronomers who were taking the data and seeing the the this kilonova uh, uh, fading, and, and, and it was starting to leak to me, and I started to be involved with some of those groups. And so it was really an, an amazing feeling when you see that this prediction you've made in, in sort of a vacuum of, of, of theory and thinking about it, uh, a uh, very exotic event that we've never seen before, and then seeing it unfold basically in real time over the course of a, of a few days uh, was was quite exciting. And people telling you it looks a lot like your your predictions, um, and and so that's you know at that point this was the first time we had directly witnessed the synthesis of these very heaviest elements in the universe. And so fascinating. Uh, yeah. And it so so anyone listening looking at a a gold wedding band all of that gold that we have on earth right now was created through the merger of neutron stars we think most most of it or a good a good chunk of it i wouldn't say we have we have we have one event so it's a little hard to extrapolate that to to say all you know with confidence to say all of it but but i think this event shows us that these are that it's a it's it's in high likelihood a, a good fraction of 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 our gold and platinum came from these types of events mm-hmm. but, so the way i describe it you know uh uh to, to my wife it, you know my, my wedding band which which has some platinum in my I, i'm, I'm comp, you know fairly confident that this was at one point very close to falling into a black hole <laughs> the material <laughs> because after these neutron stars merge the matter that doesn't get expelled that doesn't create the gold yeah. ends up going into a black hole so <laughs> i mentioned to uh, brian i mentioned to alchemy the medieval forerunner of chemistry uh, based on this supposed transformation of matter that you know, existed hundreds of years ago to, uh, m- well, one of the main focuses to convert base metals into gold. It, would we, Do we know how to do this? Could, is it possible to do this on earth? Uh, it, it is possible. It's just not very economical. So, so you, you can, uh, you know, you can, perf- you can create a, a in, in some ways, uh, a sort of the, the reproduce the conditions inside a neutron star merger on earth not not as extreme and, and and not exactly the same conditions but you can transform elements into other elements in the laboratory on earth it's just that the amount of energy and and cost that goes into it is is not worth worth the amount of of, of value you would create by 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 creating those precious metals so so we can actually in, in our labs uh uh, can, in some sense, perform uh, the alchemy that people were seeking a long time ago. It just isn't a very uh, economical endeavor. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it's been fascinating, and what a pleasure to to hear from you, to have you explain your research. Thank you, um, Brian Metzger, professor of physics at Columbia University, senior research scientist at the Flatiron Institute, and the recipient of the prestigious Blavatnik Award for his research into the origins of gold and other heavy elements in the universe. Thank you so much, Brian. Pleasure. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.
I'm Ben Kiefer with River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Today you're listening to an encore edition of the program. This half hour, we're going to tackle some really big questions. Get ready. I hope your brain's in shape for this. Uh, Big questions. Some of them uh, you may have pondered, such as, how did the universe begin? When will it end? Does God exist? Other questions you may have never even considered, such as, does the past still exist? Or how about this one? Does the universe think? Well, my guest this half hour has thought deeply about these and many other big questions, and this is important in a scientific way. We spend this half hour with German theoretical physicist Sabine Hossenfelder. Hossenfelder is currently a research fellow at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies, where she leads the Superfluid Dark Matter Group. She's published more than 80 research articles, Really complicated stuff. (laughs) Uh, Foundations of physics, quantum gravity, dark matter, that kind of thing. Uh, But she has also written about physics for a broad audience, for the rest of us, so to speak, for many years. And she is the creator of the YouTube channel Science Without the Gobbledygook. And uh, I just looked uh, on that channel and watched a few episodes. Over 500,000 subscribers at this time. Her latest book is titled existential physics a scientist's guide to life's biggest questions joining us from germany sabina hossenfelder welcome to the program hello good to talk to you so first of all before we dive into some of these questions you set out to to answer what did you set out to do overall in this book why did you write it I think a lot of people have a bad start with physics in school. Um, they they get to think it's just about how batteries work or planetary orbits, uh, nuclear decay, that kind of thing. But I think physics is our best tool to find answers to the big questions, like why do we only get older and not younger? Are there other universes? Will we ever know everything? And many others. Mm-hmm. You have a warning at the start of this book. I don't know if you have your book in front of you. Um, I wonder, either either read a portion of that or just explain why you felt the need to have a warning. Of course, very few books have <laughs> warnings at the start. I do have the book here, and I can read um, something if you want to. Maybe that first paragraph or so? Okay, sure. I want you to know what you're getting yourself into, so let me put my cards on the table up front. I'm both agnostic and a heathen. I've never been part of an organized religion and never felt the desire to join one. Still, I'm not opposed to religious belief. Science has limits, and yet humanity has always sought meaning beyond those limits. Some do it by studying holy scripture, some meditate, some dig philosophy, some smoke funny things. That's all fine with me, really. Provide that, and here's the crux, your search for meaning respects scientific fact. And then you go on one other sentence I want to add. Uh, if your belief conflicts with empirically confirmed knowledge, then you are not seeking meaning. You are delusional. <laughs> you Maybe you'd rather hold on to your delusions. Trust me, I am sympathetic to that, but then this book is not for you. That's the warning at the start of your book. So why did you feel the need to have that warning? 
Because I'm addressing some questions that I've personally found hard to deal with because science tells you something that you might not like. Uh, and I've been writing about this for 10, 15 years, and uh, I get a lot of feedback to my writing. And I think a lot of people have similar problems. So um, I wanted to put this ahead, like it, it might be difficult. And uh, I wanted people to know what they get themselves into. Yeah, of course. So let's tackle some of these questions, such fascinating questions you've uh, addressed in this book. Let's do the um, one of the first ones. Does the past still exist? So, Sabina, we are having this conversation now, in this time. Listeners are hearing this conversation in, I guess, there now, because we're pre-taping, pre-recording this conversation. Uh, doesn't now exist in a way that the past and the future do not well, if you trust Albert Einstein, which I think is a good person to trust, uh, then the answer is the moment that we call now is just a meaningless human term that we give to something. It has no fundamental meaning. And that's because according to Einstein, it's impossible that everyone agrees on which moment is now. So odd as it sounds, every moment could be now for someone, and that includes the past. So your past could be somebody else's present. And why should somebody else's present be any less real than yours? Mm -hmm. So now is meaningless. We're told so often in our society, Sabina, that now is very important. All you have is the now, and you're, you're telling us it's meaningless. In a certain way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I, it's not that I invented this, right? I'm just, I'm just telling you, well, this is what Einstein found. It's called the block universe. So, so the universe doesn't come into being, just sits there like a block already in place. I see. So help us grasp a little bit more this fourth dimension, which you, you write about in the book. Uh, we have the three dimensions we know, which can be described as, I guess, height, width, and depth. But you want this fourth dimension of time. That is so hard to add to the other three. Can you help us understand how time can be another dimension together with these spatial dimensions? So the way that we are used to think about time, it's something like a parameter. It's like uh, something that click, ticks the same for all of us. Um, so we, we all agree on uh, what time it is and what the second means and that kind of stuff. So if time becomes a dimension like the other dimensions, then really the passage of time is just a matter of putting labels on a coordinate axis, like the same way you do it with space. You can put some labels there in meters or inches uh, or what have you, but it's a matter of definition. And now once you make time into a dimension, you have the same problem. You have some labels on it, but what do those labels mean? And what Einstein found out is that the labels pretty much don't mean anything. You have to define a personal time for everybody who moves in space-time. And this is also called the proper time or eigentime, uh, if you want the German word. And this means that time really passes differently depending on how you move. Uh, so this was Einstein's great insight. And this is why time can slow down if you move really quickly or if you get close to a black hole, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And why does this matter to, to us on Earth in the 21st century? 
But to be honest, in daily life, it doesn't really matter. It, it really only matters if you move at velocities that are very close to the speed of light, or should more properly, I should say, at relative velocities close to the speed of light, which is something that we don't uh, normally achieve if we walk around. Uh, so for practical purposes, um, we can all agree on what we mean by now and how time uh, passes. But it does play a role for example, for the GPS system. Um, so we have all those satellites that are orbiting around Earth and they send signals to the ground that you can pick up with your phone. And the phone basically does a triangulation with those signals and infers exactly where you are. Uh, but for this to properly work, you have to take into account how the timestamp coming from those satellites is distorted according to Einstein's theories. So it actually has a practical use. Mm -hmm. Don't you make a... <laughs> yeah, there's quite a bit of humor in this book, which I enjoy, and it's coming through in this interview. But don't you have some sort of exercise, like if you would walk or run in a circle, let's say in a gymnasium, uh, this actually... to a tiny, tiny degree is also the case, right? Yeah, that's right. Technically, uh, it would uh, it, it would slow down time and you would age a little bit uh, slower. That's because um, this happens every time you're in an accelerated motion. And so for physicists, an acceleration um, isn't just if you hit the, the gas pedal, uh, but if you do not move in a straight line, for example, in a circle, that's also an acceleration because it changes direction. So if you run in a circle, that slows down time for you. I'll remember that next time I run around in a circle or my dog runs around in a circle. <laughs> uh, so many questions here. Uh, if you've just joined us, uh, my guest uh, this half hour, theoretical physicist Sabina Hossenfelder. Her new book, Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. She's also creator of a very popular YouTube channel called Science Without the Gobbly Gook. Do you know Bill Nye, by the way, Sabina? Do you know that name? Well, I know the name. I haven't personally met him. It, it, it strikes. I've interviewed him on this program, and he's very popular in making sort of science accessible to uh, people. And it's, it strikes me that you may be the German version of Bill Nye. But we'll set that, <laughs> we'll set that aside for... It's a compliment, by the way, a very big compliment, uh, making this these kind of uh, um, ideas accessible to people without, for instance, a physics background. I, I wonder, how did you go about choosing uh, these questions. You have, you know, do copies of us exist? Has physics ruled out free will? Does the universe think? Are humans predictable? Some of the questions you tackle in this book. How did you go about ta uh, selecting the questions? Well, this was actually pretty easy. Um, I've, I've been writing about the foundations of physics for quite a long time, 15 years, and I've been doing videos about it, as you've seen. And I was just wondering, like, what are the topics that people are most interested in? And it turned out it's those big questions about uh, free will. Do we have free will? Panpsychism, can elementary particles think? How did the universe begin? How will it end? And so on and so forth. And I thought I'd just collect them all and make a book out of it. After a short break, more of my conversation with Sabina Hossenfelder from 2022. She's a German theoretical physicist, author of the book Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. Back after a short break, it's River to River from IPR News. 
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Back now to my conversation from 2022 with theoretical physicist Zabina Hossenfelder, author of the book Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. At this point in our conversation, I mentioned the new James Webb Space Telescope and asked about her approach to the questions she raises in her book, How Did the Universe Begin and How Will It End? Yeah, so as you say correctly, the Webb telescope is super exciting uh, because I presently work uh, in astrophysics. So study the question like, what is dark matter made of? Uh, Is it made of anything? Is is it a particle or is it actually uh, a misnomer? And we should be talking about modification of gravity. And the Webb telescope um, can shed light on uh, this question, uh, no pun intended, (laughs) by looking back into the universe uh, to earlier galaxies than we have ever seen. And that that can tell us something about how soon those galaxies formed in the early universe. And that works differently depending on what type of dark matter you have or if it's a modification of gravity. So so that's very that's very exciting. But what we're still talking about fairly late times in the um, evolution of the universe, something like 300,000 years or something. So uh, when we look back even before this, data becomes very, very sparse and eventually it just runs out. So, so what we do eventually is that we just take the equations that we have and we extrapolate them back. And what we find is that they break down at some point, and that's what we call the Big Bang. So technically, the Big Bang is uh, a moment where the energy density in the universe was infinitely large. And most physicists, including me, think that this just means that the theory breaks down. And so this is what we reliably know. But then physicists have made up a lot of other stories about what could have happened instead, instead of just taking the equations and conclude that they break down and that probably isn't what happens. You can tack onto this story something else. You can, for example, say, well, actually, it wasn't it wasn't a big bang, um, but there was an earlier universe which collapsed and then it, it expanded again. So this is called a big bounce. And those bounces can actually repeat, uh, giving rise to a cyclic universe. Or it could be something else. We could have come out of a black hole and it could have been, I don't mean to scare you, but it could have been a five-dimensional black hole. Or it could have been a collision of higher dimensional membranes or something with strings uh, that string theorists like and so on and so forth. So, so there are lots of stories about how the universe could have begun. And I think this in, in many people's mind, you know, if they read those headlines, brings up the question like, why do they not know? Why do they have so many different stories? Why can't they agree? What does the data say? And where the answer is the data don't say anything about it. The data aren't good enough to tell those stories apart. uh, And I think they never will be. It's just a way in which science is fundamentally limited. Mm -hmm. I I was uh, very interested to watch some of your YouTube channel episodes the um, uh, Science Without the Gobbledygook. I wanted to 
uh, one in particular ask you about because one is titled How I Learned to Love Pseudoscience. And this is interesting because, you know, on this program, we tackle a lot of sort of anti-scientific thinking and, you know, that we think here in the U.S. and perhaps your experience, I know you've lived in the U.S. as well, uh, you know, that we've gotten away from paying attention to science and, and what data tells us and and really um, having to have claims that are backed by um, facts, <laughs> substantiated facts. But you say you've learned to love pseudoscience. How can that be? Well, I think I've just realized by uh, looking at the history of science that a lot of the progress that we have made has come from trying to distinguish science from pseudoscience. And this has allowed us to improve our methods. It has sharpened our tools, so to speak. So in a certain sense, it's like, you know, you uh, as the saying has it, uh, uh, where there's light, there has to be shadow. And I think that science and pseudoscience, they belong together in this way. You, you need something on the other side. Mm-hmm. How do you explain the popular anti-scientific attitudes in our society, especially, I think, American society today? Uh, climate science is a good example there. Many people don't seem to care if science backs up a claim. And and also another thing I'll just add in there, which you are an academic, and being called an academic in recent years is not always meant in a positive way, is it? Yeah, that's right. So um, we, we call this trend anti-science, but um, I, I think people aren't really against science. It's more that they don't trust scientists, or maybe they don't trust academia specifically. Um, and, you know, to some extent, I can't really blame them, because especially if I look at my own research area on the foundations of physics, there's a lot of stuff that gets published, which isn't really scientific. And I feel that to some extent, people feel that you know there's a lot of stuff going on in science which which isn't really proper science and they feel that they can't really trust the system but then they throw out the baby with the bathwater <laughs> so so that's where the problem starts i was surprised you also tackled the question does god exist uh, there's one that will get some passions going <laughs> how did you tackle that uh, in a scientific way well, um, so I, I think that God is just outside the, the realm of science. Um, so um, I didn't really define what we mean by God, but I was talking about some example, for example, that God made the world uh, 6,000 years ago. Um, and I think there's just nothing that we have in terms of evidence that would speak against this. So it's really an idea that lies outside of science. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the point you make in that episode is science concerns itself only with things that are observable. Um, and, and as you just pointed out, this is not something that is observable. So you would have really no, you can't weigh in on it really in, in the way you do on, on other things. Basically, yes, uh, though I think that the way that I put it was a little bit more complicated, <laughs> which is that uh, we concern ourselves with explanations for what we observe. And the reason I phrased this so carefully is that, uh, as you probably know, in quantum mechanics, we have this issue that we describe things by way of a wave function, which is not itself observable. And then you can debate back and forth, does the wave function actually exist? And exactly what do we mean by this? 
but we all agree that the wave function actually describes our observations. Mm -hmm. Science Without the Gobbledygook is your popular YouTube channel. Um, you have subscribers, I assume, because you have more than half a million of them from all around the world. Uh, what interests you most in the uh, uh, viewers, the reactions to your book, to your writings from, from people around the world? Surprising reactions? As, uh, d can you tell anything about our world through your lens of reactions to your writings about physics? Well, I always find it interesting to hear what what's the next thing that people are interested in. Um, and uh, also, I can tell from the reactions whether they understood what I was uh, what I was trying to get across. For example, the, the video which you, uh, interestingly enough, just mentioned about whether God exists, and then I go on to ask, do I exist? Does the multiverse exist? I think this is something that people found very difficult to understand. Uh, and I've tried to improve on this uh, in my book, and I, I have another video coming up uh, on, on, on the multiverse uh, where I also try to explain better uh, what I was trying to say uh, with that. So this feedback, which I get from my viewers, is super, super important to me. Mm -hmm. are, there, are there, as a theoretical physicist, are there questions, things that you just can't wrap your, even your mind around at this point? <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the questions you already mentioned in the beginning is is the question, does the universe think? <laughs> so this is something which I'm still trying to figure out uh, what it really means. So I've pretty much arrived at the conclusion that we can't rule it out. It might actually be possible that the universe think. And what the heck does this now mean? Yeah. What does it mean to have a universe that thinks? And you haven't arrived at... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Sabina Hassenfelder, what... It... I'm just interested. This is such fascinating work, um, so complex to think about and then pick apart. What do you do to relax? Well, um, what do I do to relax? Um, so I I like to make music, um, mostly on my computer, I have to admit. Uh, I sing, I write songs, uh, make compositions. Uh, sometimes I draw. Um, I used to do some animations, as you've probably seen uh, on my YouTube channel. I don't do this anymore, um, but um, I, I quite like doing some uh, artistic things, I guess. That was my conversation from 2022 with theoretical physicist Sabina Hossenfelder, author of the book Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. Today's encore edition of River to River was edited by Danny Gear and originally produced by Sam McIntosh. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.